You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. And tech continues to lead markets lower as the downturn hits Silicon Valley harder than most other sectors. We talk technicals. Then Amazon Web Services CEO discusses Amazon's new in-house chips and the latest on restructuring. And Twitter is no longer policing COVID misinformation. That's as content concerns continue while Elon Musk takes aim at the app stores. But first, Ed, let's bring in Rob Cantwell. He is Portfolio Manager at Upholdings. And Rob, it's great to have you with the show. And we actually source a little bit of data ourselves nowadays. From Twitter, we go out with our daily poll and we wanted to ask our audience whether they are currently selling big tech, whether the reasons around that, whether they're blaming the Federal Reserve and rate hikes, whether they're blaming the economic slowdown, whether they're blaming political headwinds. And actually, Rob, we got some bullish sentiment. They're not selling, they're buying in majority. Rob, are you buying at this point? Well, it's uh, tricky to go on a technology platform and ask them if they want to buy more technology. Uh, <laughs> we, we certainly are finding uh, uh, plenty of good deals in the space, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating time to be an investor in big tech, small tech, medium tech, because big tech has gotten so big. It's now more than 25% of the S&P 500 that it has become intertwined with macroeconomic factors and statistics. And that hasn't been the case for the past 20 years. Google hasn't had to care about currency headwinds up until about six months ago. And so you've now got all these tech analysts that have been scrambling because the earnings calls this past quarter, everybody missed due to currency. So now you've got all these tech analysts that have to become currency experts, and it's thrown things a little bit upside down. But really what that's done is it has created plenty of opportunities for those that are willing to wait some of this stuff out because there's, there's obviously you want to be buying when, when folks are selling. We've been saying this line on Bloomberg Technology for weeks now about higher rates discount the present value of future profits, right? That's why we care about the Fed in the context of the tech sector. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. What is the bigger risk to the technology sector, the Fed or inflation? Well, uh, interest rates actually affect a lot of things. Uh, they can push your multiple down from the discount factor that you just discussed. Uh, it also pushes down your growth rate. And a lower growth rate also drives a lower multiple. And if you look back over long enough periods of time, higher interest rates also means lower margins. 
So you're talking about a triple hit here of your discount factor, uh, your margins for the company, and the growth rate expectations. And that's why you've seen stocks like Meta trade down almost 70% this year. They obviously have some other factors as well. So interest rates, where we sit right now, interest rates are more of a risk to the global economy than inflation. Inflation has started calming down over the past 30 days or so, uh, but we're now in a low growth world and most central banks are saying they're not done raising interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a single analyst out there that is forecasting a reacceleration in growth because until we see that interest rates have paused, that, that effect that interest rates have on growth for the worldwide economy is going to continue to be an issue uh, valuing a lot of these companies. And the impact that raising rates has on the labor market in particular, that is the other side of the coin and of sacrifice that the Federal Reserve is willing to swallow at the moment. We're seeing those job layoffs coming thick and fast to the tech sector first and foremost. Rob, is that the way you want to see companies controlling costs? Are we likely to see them being the canary in the coal mine and this sweeping into other sectors? You know, it's job layoffs are, are, are a tricky one because you saw at the onset of COVID in early 2020, every company laid off too many employees. And then six months later, they were scrambling to rehire again. So you get these strange boom and bust cycles where uh, companies fire, profit margins start improving, and then they start chasing employees all over again. So whether or not we've gone, recent history tells us that companies are likely going too far again in these recent layoffs. This, this coincidental 13% layoff number that became the socially accepted average for the amount of your workforce you could let go, yeah. we found to be a little bit peculiar and was a bit more reflective of companies just trying to hide in the average and not trying to stand out by not firing, but also not trying to stand out by over-firing their, uh, their overall workforce. But in aggregate, it's just volatility in an economy is, is a risk because it doesn't allow the managers to plan and execute their strategies as smoothly as they could if there was less volatility. So Robert, we're certainly in a very volatile moment uh, and interested to see what comes out the other side. We, we know it's been a tough year, right? You look at the NASDAQ 100, we're down 30% as of Tuesday's close, as we know, the worst year since 2008. If there are green, green shoots or bright spots in the technology sector, where are they? Well, what, what, what's remarkable is that the, the usage of technology remains incredibly strong. You know, Elon reporting record you know, user signups and usage of Twitter, that's not unique to Twitter. That's happening everywhere. That's happening at Instagram. That's happening at TikTok. And there's a couple of other technology transitions that are happening. Uh, the cloud computing one, we think Datadog is an incredibly well-positioned company that's already making money and is expanding margins. End-to-end -end payments, uh, where Stripe is a private company, Adyen is their public competitor. Uh, those are two areas where even though there's been a slowdown in growth as a whole, you're still seeing that the technology has such an advantage over the incumbents that the growth rates of those companies has remained penetrating. So those are the areas that, that we're the most focused on over the next 12 months or so some optimism there from one voice in the investment community. Rob Campbell, Portfolio Manager at Upholdings, thank you. Now let's turn to Twitter, which scrapped its policy preventing the sharing of false or misleading information about COVID-19. That was done quietly, announced on the company's website over the holiday week last week and has been effective since November 23rd. Bloomberg Sarah Fryer is here with more details. And Sarah, why was this announced so quietly? 
Well, I think that what we're seeing here is this company is not as focused on being uh, proactive with his communications, except directly through Elon Musk. What we've seen is he's the one who's tweeting out uh, what's happened with Twitter. He's explaining his thoughts, almost stream of consciousness, um, to the public. And then when it comes to these policy changes, we might not see a broad announcement or blog post like we would in Twitter past. It just isn't, they don't have, they're not staffed to do it. They laid off the entire communications staff. So I think that we're just going to see, you know, this is a private company right now. We as reporters have to ask questions uh, of our sources and keep paying attention to what the leadership says. Dramatically reducing the size of the team devoted to tackling child sexual exploitation as well as one of the key stories out on the Bloomberg Terminal today, Sarah, and your team driving that home. Talk to us about where he therefore is focused. If he's not focused on some of the PRs around this or indeed some of the content which many brands are worried about, he seems to be more worried about where people are sitting in the office and how they're all coming together, right? I think he's absolutely concerned right now with making sure that there is a sense of momentum, a sense of, of all the engineers together trying to build the next iteration of the product. He wants to launch a new form of, of verification on Twitter very soon, and he's crossing his fingers that it doesn't cause those kind of public disasters we saw the last time it happened. So I, I, think, I think he's getting a trial by fire in understanding how social media businesses work. Uh, we saw him talk in the last couple days about the app stores for Apple and Google and how he thinks that they're unfair. And so I, I really think that this is, um, this is a moment where like the content moderation stuff we will see fall by the wayside a bit um, as he tries to prove that he can grow Twitter. Uh, I just want to bring you some breaking headlines crossing the Bloomberg, Caroline. Oathkeeper leader Rhodes was convicted of the January 6th sedition charge. You'll remember a jury has been considering the charges against that militia group and its leader, five individuals for a number of weeks, but that is the headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Oathkeeper leader Rhodes convicted of January 6th sedition charge. We'll bring you more as we get that. Interestingly, Sarah, some more headlines crossing the Bloomberg. Uh, Twitter's former trusts and safety boss, Yoel Roth, speaking publicly, saying that he fears not enough Twitter employees left to police content. Uh, that's coming from somebody who knew the trust and safety side of the business well. Uh, that's concerning. Well, the way you police content on, and police is a, a, a weird way to put it, it's really about having the expertise to know where to draw the line between something being, uh, you know, an opinion or a, a necessary thing that they want to they want to say to their audience versus something that could be harmful, that could instigate violence, that could that could cause issues. And when you don't have subject matter experts in various areas of content, you may not be able to make that determination. So I think that you know, Twitter by cutting a lot of its staff, we recently reported today that the, the team that works on, on um, child exploitation content, the highly specific expertise to, to be able to weed that stuff out effectively has been cut in half, um, you, end, you will end up with a lot of trouble. Um, one thing we reported, and in fact you helped us report the story out, the, the team that was working with governments um, trying to understand what to do about, about content takedown requests from certain governments yeah. or asking for data on users, I mean that team has been decimated. So I, I think they're going to be in a really tough spot on a lot of these very difficult decisions going forward. Sarah Fryer, we want to thank you so much for all of that.
Let's get to those all-important crypto markets, Ed, because worries about contagion from the implosion of FTX still hangs over the digital asset class. Nevertheless, they're pushing higher on Tuesday. Yeah, it's interesting. We found a little bit of momentum across a number of cryptocurrencies, digital tokens throughout Tuesday's main session. We hit 5 p.m. Eastern. We spill over into the following day. We're finding our feet. Even so, I want to get straight to the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. It's an interesting index because it trades very similar to the equity markets in an equity index, that it has an opening and closing point, and it's weighted based on the biggest uh, digital tokens by market value. So largely Bitcoin, Ether, Tether. But you can see since that tweet, that original tweet from CZ, where we first had those concerns or revelations, as he called them, raised about FTX, we're down now more than 25% across the basket of cryptocurrencies that the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index is tracking. A question posed in the story today is that as more and more of the fallout kind of becomes unveiled, in which direction does this index go? It still has some downward momentum, and it looks like we're going to have to have something very serious to snap out of this fundamental downward trend we're seeing in this broad basket of crypto, Karen. Yeah, and let's get a little bit more into the FTX collapse right here, right now, too. As you give us the macro, let's go in a little bit more on the micro, because there's been much hand-wringing about well, whether it's got a wider impact on the growth of crypto at large. Many have tried to highlight that actually FTX's demise actually underpins the reason that decentralized finance is needed, because FTX was too centralized. Just take a listen to Tim Draper of Draper Associates, what he had to say about it. FTX was very centralized. It was all centered around this one guy. And when you centralize anything, um, bad things can happen. Let's now talk about all of this with our next guest, Divya Siddharth. She is the co-founder of the Collective Intelligence Project. Unlike Tim Draper, don't think centralization is inherently bad. But I first and foremost want to make clear to our audience that in your own funding for your project, you did take some re-granted funds from FTX Future Fund. It's widely known that they've given money to an awful lot of organizations. You're an experimental research organization. Just tell us a little bit why the Future Fund would have had interest in getting to grips with democratic, effective governance that you study. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of overlaps between that question and the one about centralization and decentralization, because a lot of the supposed promise of crypto on the decentralized side was to say there is something about democratic, effective governance and self-determination that is enabled by these technologies, right? Um, That we are able to do more decentralized, less intervention-oriented institutional structures. Uh, And we were experimenting with democracy and technology, and so got some regranted funds from FTX in that process. I think it speaks to also this question around whether centralization is good or bad, because in my point of view, accountability is really a big part of the goal of both decentralization and centralization. And the ecosystem is often much more focused on the the kind or the degree of decentralization as opposed to the type of decentralization. So you ran this uh, quote of Tim Draper, for example, who was saying, you know, FTX is too centralized. But comparing that to banks, which haven't failed in quite a while, are very centralized entities in some sense and are regulated as such, right? And so I think it's quite complicated to call something as a whole purely centralized and say all of its faults are down to that. Divya, we've had this debate over centralized, decentralized. You've introduced us to a third term, polycentralism or polycentrism. What is that? 
Yeah, it's a bit of an academic term, um, but I find myself often saying we don't want either decentralization or centralization. What we want is polycentrism. Uh, and the term is a bit what it sounds like, so having many centers. And I think the problem is, you know, decentralized systems often carry a grain of centralization within them. A great example of this is the internet. And so the TCP IP protocol that underpins a lot of the communication uh, capabilities and packet switching of the internet is decentralized. And it has successfully been decentralized, right? But the way that that happens is actually through this complex polycentric having many systems uh, sorry many centers of standard setting organizations and regulatory agencies and private companies that kind of sprung up around it that allowed for that decentralization to stay in place however you know the internet as we know it now is not decentralized most of us spend our time on the internet on five websites and why did that happen because many of the layers of the stack under over that decentralized protocol centralized because there was no kind of clear polycentric structure keeping them decentralized. And, you know, decentralization tends to centralize without some checks and balances. So I think that's where this idea of polycentrism comes from. Instead of just allowing chaotic centralization from chaotic decentralization, can you intentionally allow checks and balances? And by the way, this is basically the principle that underpins federalism and the U.S. government and all of these kinds of things that say there yeah. should be something between the, the local and the, the federal, right? To that end, Divya, therefore, is it regulation that helps with the transparency, the checks and the balances within inevitably centralized parts. How do you get to the utopia of polycentrism? Does it become organic or do you need actually real fundamental rules in place to drive that? I think it's a great question. I mean, I think regulation is one thing and regulating harms is always important, but many of successful polycentric systems, whether you think about it as federal agencies, Wikipedia is a polycentric system, and many open source code repositories run this way. Uh, and the word actually comes from Eleanor Ostrom, who's a Nobel Prize winner. And she looks at self-governing systems, not regulation at all, not state-run systems at all. And so I think a lot of this is not just rules, but can you have different kinds of institutions. Can you have public input and private input and civil society input? And that's how the standard setting process of the internet currently runs. And so polycentrism won't work if it's just rules top down. It's this ecosystem of different centers that's necessary. And I do think you know the crypto industry, what, where it goes next uh, is unclear, but to succeed, it will need to develop this kind of polycentric ability to not just invite in certain forms of regulation, but actually have different groups at the table because otherwise a lot of these, you know, uh, tend towards either centralization or plutocracy. Okay, Divya Siddharth, co-founder of the Collective Intelligence Project. Thank you. Coming up, we'll bring you the latest venture capital roundup from around the world. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Talking Tech, and today, a venture capital roundup, starting with farm robots. That's what Cleveland Avenue, the VC firm founded by a former McDonald's CEO, is investing in, leading a $46.5 million Series A funding round for the agriculture tech startup Verdant Robotics. This as farmers increasingly rely on technology to produce enough food for a growing population while also facing a shortage of workers and pressure to reduce their environmental impact. And while the venture market is in the middle of a downturn, there are still plenty of emerging players. Seedstars has launched a platform called Seedstars Capital, along with the Swiss-based investment holding company X Multiplied. The goal? To funnel as much as $500 million of new funding into emerging and diverse VC managers in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, and Central and Eastern Europe. And staying in the world of global VCs, Evolution Equity Partners is betting on cybersecurity and scouting for more investors from Asia and the Middle East for its latest fund. The firm has raised $500 million for this fund so far with a target of $750 million, expected to close in the first quarter of 2023. Karen. Ed, loving how you follow the money. Meanwhile, coming up, AWS CEO Adam Slipsky discussing layoffs, discussing the chip sector and growing competition. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Now, Amazon's reInvent Cloud Computing Conference is underway in Las Vegas, and the company announcing it will build its own chips for AWS customers looking for high-performance computers. Please to say Bloomberg's Emily Chang is, in fact, San Francisco, joining with more. Thank you, Caroline. And joining us now from reInvent in Las Vegas is AWS CEO Adam Salipsky. Conference off to a good start. Adam, thank you for joining us. You've got a pronounced economic downturn happening. You've got layoffs happening across the board, including at Amazon, but still record Cyber Monday sales. Against that backdrop, what is the main message you want customers to take away from reInvent this year? It's great to see you, Emily. Thanks so much. Uh, we are so excited to be here in Las Vegas at our 11th reInvent with over 50,000 customers and partners live here, as well as over 300,000 uh, registered around the world for the uh, for the virtual part of the event. Uh, I think uh, there are, uh, the big probably the biggest message here at reInvent is that uh, companies and all sorts of organizations continue to transform themselves using the cloud. That you know, particularly in times of economic uncertainty that that's the best time to lean in because the cloud is the most efficient uh, place to be running 
uh, cost savings at least of 30% for most enterprises who move workloads to the cloud. Uh, cloud's also the place to be f flexible. You can uh, grow and shrink your capacity at will. And it's a place to, to innovate where you can you know, do more with fewer resources. So precisely because of the economic uncertainty and not despite it, we see a mm -hmm. lot of companies leaning in. Now, Amazon, in a way, has already reinvented cloud technology. What does the next era of reinvention actually look like? Well, I think we're still very early in cloud adoption, Emily. I mean, despite the fact that uh, AWS is the is significant leader uh, in in the cloud space, and, and as you said, did uh, did uh, pioneer it starting in 2006. Uh, probably, depending on what study you look at, maybe 10% of IT workloads have moved to the cloud, and uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of dollars because there's a lot of IT in the world, but it's still only a small percentage. And we firmly believe that in the fullness of time, you know, most IT will move to the cloud. So I think that uh, we're seeing you know, companies leaning in, a lot of acceleration happening, tremendous interest in our continuing to improve price performance for customers, interest in data and machine learning and analytics and interest in specialized purpose-built solutions for different vertical industries and horizontal business functions. Now, if indeed this is a recession, it's a first for AWS as a sort of company within a company. Amazon has seen this before, but AWS hasn't. You know, now you've got big company sales, but also big company problems. What are you cutting and where? Where are you pausing and why? Well, Emily, actually, uh, AWS was founded in, in, well, launched in 2006. And so uh, you know, we were already in business for the, uh, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. And it was really interesting. We didn't know then if that would, uh, would help us or hurt us, quite frankly. And it turned out, I, I think it was actually a significant tailwind because a lot of companies who didn't have the money for capital expenditure were easily able to move to the cloud and get moving quickly on AWS, really with, with just operating expense and being able to turn capacity on and off. Now, I don't know if we're going to have a recession now, and I don't know exactly how that will impact our customers and us if we do, but I think there's at least a reasonable hypothesis that, uh, again, uh, a lot of companies could actually turn to the cloud uh, in the case of a recession. And we're very focused always on helping companies be extremely cost effective. In good times, in lean times, in any times, we want customers okay. to spend as little as they possibly can for any particular unit of work. And we know they'll bring more workloads to the cloud if, if the economics make sense. But how are you applying that to AWS itself? I mean, Andy Jassy has said that cuts are going to continue into next year, and the plan is to lay off thousands of corporate employees. How many of those employees are coming from within AWS? Is there a hiring freeze? How are you changing your spending strategy? Well, we have taken a pause in AWS on uh, hiring uh, new employees. Uh, we've actually expanded tremendously over the past several years. I mean, very high uh, employee growth for a number of years in a row, uh, really all to support our business growth and, uh, of course, to support all the things that our customers want to do. So we have actually a significant amount of resources all across the company in development, sales and marketing. And I think we, we're well positioned right now to uh, make sure we're being really efficient with all those people we've hired. And I think we're gonna have uh, certainly all the capacity uh, of people that we need for right now, to get a lot of things done for our customers. So we are gonna take that pause, but I think we'll still be able to de deliver. Okay, now on the last call, you said uh, the
the growth rate of AWS trailed off in Q3. Has that continued into Q4? Are you seeing customers pulled back? You mentioned financial services, crypto mortgages. Are those still the weaker business lines? And is anything bucking the trend? Well, as we said on the on the last call, I, I think there are some, uh, you know, there's a mix of headwinds and tailwinds, and uh, we do see customers, uh, some customers tightening their belts, which I mentioned earlier, and just getting efficient with their cloud spend. And frankly, they should be doing that all the time, and we help them do that all the time. But I think more of them are doing that right now. Uh, at the same time, you see other customers uh, leaning in because of the uh, the cost efficiencies, um, because of the flexibility in their in their overall usage and uh, and, and and spend. So I think you see a mix of these things. Um, I, I think regardless of whatever happens in the short term, that you know in any medium term scenario, uh, really the secular trend of uh, very strong long term adoption of the cloud is going to continue. Now, data centers consume a lot of water, and Amazon Web Services has, has promised to replenish the water that it consumes. But you're still not disclosing the amount of water that AWS actually uses, which is something that Google does do. Why not release that number when the industry and some of um, the stakeholders really want more transparency? Well, Emily, we're a leader in sustainability overall. We've released a lot of statistics. We've pledged to be net zero carbon, uh, net zero carbon as a company across Amazon by 2040. We said we're going to be 100% renewable energy as a company by 2025. We're already 85% of the way there towards that goal. Uh, so there's lots of stats we've released. And then this week, we did make a pledge to be water positive by 2030, meaning that we're going to return more water to the communities than we uh, use in our direct operations by 2030. And we released our actual energy efficiency usage stat uh, this week. We consume 0.25 liters of water per kilowatt hour in our data center. Uh, that is not a stat which every other cloud provider releases, and those who do, uh, do not have as good performance as we have. We're the leader in the cloud space with that. And we'll continue to, uh, uh, to release more data uh, as the months and the years go on. So I think it'll be good transparency from AWS. And most importantly, I think we'll continue to be a leader and to actually uh, build towards a sustainable future, including with water. Now, you're continuing to develop your own chip technology, which is we've talked about in the past. You're promoting it at reInvent, and it does make a lot of sense. But I wonder how it impacts your relationships with suppliers. Why wouldn't NVIDIA, Intel, AMD give better prices or better uh, supply uh, to other competitors, to Google, to Microsoft, when you've got your own silicon in the making? Well, uh, Emily, we have great relationships with uh, all of those uh, chip manufacturers, including the ones you mentioned, uh, Intel and AMD, NVIDIA, et cetera. And uh, we're going to continue to have those great relationships. We continue to sign long-term deals with, uh, with, with, with many of those uh, suppliers. Uh, I mean, AWS is, is, is large now. Uh, last quarter, we were an $82 billion a year run rate. And uh, we have tremendous capacity needs around the world. Our customers have a, just a vast heterogeneity of different needs. And so I think there are lots of use cases for all of those uh, chip vendors to be working with us to service our customers. And there's going to be uh, increasing uh, use cases and big-time uh, big utility for our, our own custom-designed chips as well. All right, Adam Salipsky, CEO of AWS, joining us from reInvent in Las Vegas. Good luck with the rest of the conference, guys. I'll send it back to you. All right, thanks, Emily.
BlockFi, which is going through its own bankruptcy proceedings now, is looking to collect money from the other bankrupt empire, Sam Bankman-Fried's bankrupt empire, including from Alameda Research to the tune of $680 million. Shinali Basak is here to explain the dispute and the huge amount of documents you've been wading through. Uh, there has certainly been a lot of legal documents because, of course, there are multiple bankruptcies as well as a lawsuit. So let's bring you through this for a second here because you have money that BlockFi was owed from Alameda, as you said, $680 million. And then FTX had also had a credit line over to BlockFi. They are owed $275 million. They had a credit line in which they were not able, BlockFi was not able to get the entire extent of their money. And remember, when it comes to the money that they lent to Alameda, interestingly, uh, BlockFi is seeking the collateral, and they're doing it in the means of a separate regulatory filing here. Now, I'm holding here uh, BlockFi's lawsuit against Emergent Fidelity Technologies. Remember, that mm -hmm. is the company that had bought the Robinhood shares. This entity is not included in the bankruptcy filings, which is what makes this interesting. Interestingly, also, uh, defendant in this lawsuit is ED and F Man Capital Markets, which had held the collateral that is being disputed here, and according to the Financial Times, which saw the loan documents between BlockFi and uh, and Emergent Technologies here, Emergent Fidelity Technologies, the collateral in dispute is the Robinhood shares. So they want them back. They want them back <laughs> because this is what was liquid inside the Sam Bankman-Fried empire at large. Remember, this is not an entity that is in the bankruptcy proceedings when it comes to FTX. However, that draws a lot of questions in terms of how BlockFi gets paid and, frankly, how other people get paid because BlockFi wants to get paid to pay everybody else. This is deeply confusing for money. <laughs> Ultimately, you, you hearing from lawyers how likely they are to get a significant amount of the 680 million they're after back. You know, it's an interesting question because 680 million in the scope of billions of dollars here, it's a significant amount of money, especially when you look at the rest of what BlockFi's uh, creditors are owed here. Remember, a large group of creditors are owned 700 25 million or so. So that means that 650 would really help on that regard. But something interesting to just kind of bring you into the background here, I spent again another day with the bankruptcy experts and lawyers. And something interesting they told me is one thing that hasn't happened here yet is creditor committees getting together, ah. which could become very interesting. Because in this instance, if you watch a normal bankruptcy play out on Wall Street, you're seeing big creditors, you know, big hedge funds or private equity firms band together to get their money back or fight against each other. But in this case, because the deposit are key here, you might see more aligning of interest between these big institutional investors and the customers themselves that are working with trusts to get their money back. I have a feeling this will go on and on. Shanali Basak is going to go back to those bankruptcy experts, I'm sure, but there's a lot of money being passed around, some very interconnected woven parts here. Meanwhile, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about, unfortunately, once again, layoffs, because AMC Networks, the network responsible for shows like Breaking Bad, like The Walking Dead, like Top Gear, says it is planning to lay off about 20% of its US workforce. Now, this follows an announcement earlier on Tuesday that its chief executive has stepped down less than three months after taking the reins. It's become the latest media company rocked by loss of viewers to streaming services such as Netflix and Disney Plus. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to get digging deep into the chip sector, into Chinese exposure of US giants such as Lam Research. The CFO, Doug Bettinger, is going to be joining us. The changing semiconductor chip landscape amid all these geopolitical tensions. This is Bloomberg.
What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now to the fast-changing power struggles in the semiconductor chip industry. Major companies like Apple and Amazon are jump-starting plans to make in-house chips for their products as geopolitical tensions get in the way of manufacturing. For instance, COVID lockdowns and worker protests at Apple's key assembly plant in China have pushed back delivery times for the iPhone 14 Pro models in the US as long as 37 days, according to CounterPoint Research. Now, White House trade restrictions with China are creating more headaches for chip makers and chip equipment makers. LAM Research, for example, says it could lose nearly half of its China revenue in 2023 because of those new policies. For more, we bring in LAM's CFO, Doug Bettinger. He's at the Credit Suisse Annual Technology Conference in Arizona. Doug, let's get right to it. How do you navigate a world where the US, your home country, has policies in place that prevent you selling to China your biggest potential market? Yeah, Ed, what I observe uh, going on is there were some technology lines that were drawn. Some of the most advanced uh, manufacturing process capability now requires a license to be able to ship to China, which presumptively is uh, is going to be not granted. And so um, what that has done is we, we as we look into next year, it, it's impacted two to two and a half billion dollars of our revenue has, has gone away from the customers that were impacted by that. Um, you know, the regulations are what they are. You have to comply with them at the end of the day, and, and that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, you, you know, having said all that, we, we, we just finished the best quarter financially in the history of our company, our 42-year-old company, uh, just north of $5 billion in revenue. And looking into the December quarter, seeing strength continuing there, in spite of the fact that we have to deal with these uh, restrictions in terms of certain customers and certain technologies in China. 
Doug, there is some evidence that, that some names have been able to be a bit nimble. Were the stri- restrictions and the licenses actually as hard to come by as you feared? Um, you know, we had seen that we knew this was coming. Uh, I mean, we had been interacting with the Department of Commerce, U.S. government relative to kind of how the industry works, how we were positioned in the industry, how, how the equipment sector supports the customer base. And so it was an educated process, I guess, is what I would describe. And uh, we understood it was coming and, and we were prepared for it. Do you understand more could be coming? Tougher rules coming from the United States, the tit for tat continuing? You know, as, I, as we sit here today, I don't see anything incremental to what has already um, been communicated and out there. So I, I kind of think we are where we are. Um, and it's, it's part of just doing business. Um, China is going to be a little bit different, but the, the broad business is still pretty strong. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing our best to support our customers uh, no matter where they are geographically. So you remain committed to China. You remain as invested in that country going forward? Uh, yeah, we still have a, a lot of customers we're shipping to in China. Um, some we no longer can in, at certain process technology nodes. And some of those customers, they, they have process technology that doesn't need the license. So we still do business with them. And uh, yeah, we're, we're still absolutely committed to the, the China region. And everywhere our customers uh, are, are buying equipment and equ- equipping their fabs. Doug, if you saw this coming, is that 2 to 2.5 billion sales hit for China conservative? Could, could the picture actually be brighter than that? You know, it might be. I, I think things are going to evolve. What ended up happening is technology lines were drawn, excuse me, were drawn, and the most advanced technology requires a license, which again, presumptively won't be granted. Um, it's possible that some of these customers would invest at uh, process technology nodes that don't require the license. I think those discussions and evaluations are underway. Uh, and if there's some level of success there, then it won't be a, as big as the two to two and a half billion dollars that we described. But uh, right now, that's uh, the best I have for you is two to two and a half billion dollars of, of impact to us. Doug, you sound pretty buoyant around the rest of the business. And I'm interested about consumer demand right here, right now, particularly for consumer electronics. How is that ultimately affecting your business right now? What are the headwinds there? You know, Caroline, as, as we look into next year, I mean, the semiconductor industry I describe as a growth cyclical industry. Uh, we grow over time. In fact, I was I was looking at some data the other day uh, between pre-COVID and, and kind of where we're at today from 2019 to 2022. Semiconductor industry has grown by 50 percent from a revenue standpoint. And the, uh, the spending on wafer fab equipment, which is what we do, has grown by nearly 90%. Those are the trends I see continuing into the future. Mm. Um, but it's a growth cyclical industry. So, um, you know, as we evaluate what next year looks like, we do believe, and in fact, as we uh, talk to our customers and understand what their plans are for next year, that there will be a reduction in spending next year uh, up to uh, the tune of 20 plus percent is what we see in terms of investment in wafer fab equipment spending. It's a growth cyclical industry. We have to be able to manage the company when that happens. We've been doing it for a long time and and we'll manage it accordingly going into next year. But but that's not what gets me excited, right? Um, There there was a study McKinsey published earlier this year that talked about a trillion dollar semiconductor industry by the end of the decade. That's exciting. That's what I see happening in, in, in this industry. The semiconductor industry is enabling all aspects of society. Data is exploding. Um, we are the plumbing underneath making that data useful. 
And when an industry grows to a trillion dollars, there's a lot more equipment that's going to need to be put in place to to be able to support that level of business. Doug, 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 real quick, because we're going to run out of time in a second. R&D, you make the machines that make the chips in simple terms, but you seem really bullish about investment. Talk to us very quickly about R&D. What is going to drive you forward technologically? You know, every year, every single year, we have to bring out new capability. What our customers want in the future is beyond what we're able to do today. And so you you always have to be getting better in this business. And that's absolutely what we're doing. You know, one of the things when I when I look at the product portfolio at Lamb Research, yeah. we're bringing out a brand new etch platform that we're extremely excited about. It's the first bottoms up redesign of our etch configuration in, in over 20 years. We're the leader in etch technology um, and we've got a brand new tool capability coming out mm. that the customers are excited about, as are we. We love a bit of excitement. Thank you, Doug Bettinger, Lamb Research CFO over at the Credit Suisse event. Meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about what's going viral today because a new activist ad taking aim at big tech is using deep fakes to mock. A lack of oversight. The ad by Demand Progress shows a monopoly man, as you can see, morph into a deep fake of none other than Mark Zuckerberg, who thanks Congress for failing to take action against big tech companies. It will air during the lame duck period in Congress as the lawmakers draft major antitrust legislation. Look, tech companies, lobbyists, have spent $120 million on advertising against the bill. Ed, I've already been seeing you've been making some great social content based on this very ad, right? Well, it's all about timing, right? The Congress reset, January 3rd, the GOP comes in. They want this bill moved quickly by Pelosi and Schumer, so that's why they put the deep fake out there. Go check him out. What is it, on Instagram? Is it on TikTok, that one? And it's on Twitter, at Technology. We're cross-platform on this show. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Wednesday, we have DYDX CEO Antonio Giuliano to discuss operations in leading crypto derivatives exchange there. And don't forget to check out our podcast at your usual platforms, Caro. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.